Ah, the life of an artist, guided by the creative spirit, an open road lays ahead of them. Inspiration is everywhere, not a care in the world. Admired, encouraged, the life of an artist is easy. What could possibly stop the artist from pursuing their dreams? Oh, really? Well, then how about bills, bosses, babies, rejection, exhaustion, fear, failure? If you want to be an artist these days, you better buckle up because no one's going to do it for you. Welcome to the How To Human Podcast. Hello, human. From time to time, you may feel strong emotions, inadequate, or different from your peers. While this is perfectly normal, sharing these thoughts and feelings with others is inappropriate. So take all those nasty little thoughts and feelings and bury them deep down inside, where no one will ever find them. No, no, no. Like everything Hello Humans, this program's no different. Show up exactly as you are. Before we get going, I wanted to say a huge public thank you to our patrons. Thank you! Ugh, it's Thanksgiving when I record this, by the way, so extra thank you! This program's audience funded. I don't want to shove ads in front of your face. I want to keep it this way. So if you can, go to www.patreon.com slash hellohuman. Chip in a cup of coffee a month, a burrito a month, a tank of gas a month. But if you're not in a place to contribute financially, no worries. Subscribe on iTunes. Share it with your friends. Those are all free and a huge help. Let's get on to the show. Today's episode is a nightmare homework assignment to any teenager. Interview your parents. But no, really, today's episode's on being an artist, bringing things into this world, working for yourself, following that nudge inside of you that you're supposed to be doing something. And there's no better person for me to interview than my mom. I didn't think much of it back then, but my mom raised me with no money, no career, just a ragtag group of friends and pursuing her dream of being an artist. My mom's done a lot of really excellent interviews, but this one's a little different since I am in the trenches of trying to create my own thing, this media company, write, create art, and just follow my dreams. I wanted to get her perspective from square one. Where do we start? How do we keep going? So here is the most formal conversation I've ever had with my mom that we've called creation, starting, and doing. Hi. Hi. So you're my mom. Correct. I know who you are. Yes. <laughs> That's where I've seen you before. I knew I knew you from somewhere. Yeah. But for the sake of the program, who are you? I'm um, a writer named Anne Lamott. I've written something like 17 books, although that can't be right. Have you ever counted? I've read a lot of them. I see them all over the house. I think I've written seven novels, and my first four books were novels, and I've written maybe 10 works on writing, motherhood, faith, and just getting through real life, lurching and flailing and always getting back up when we fall. So how did you decide to be a writer? Like, when did that start? Well, my father, your grandfather was a writer, Kenneth Lamont, and I um, grew up in a house where we just read, everyone read. It was our church. We were atheists, but we went to the church of the Tiburon Library every Thursday, and we got books to read for the week. And every single morning, rain or shine or hangover, 
my father sat down and wrote at 5.30. So you'd wake up. I was always a terrible sleeper, and you'd hear tap, 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 tap on his old Olympia. And I um, noticed that all of his friends were really fascinating but kind of crazy, alcoholic. And um, they were all writers, too. And what they did was get together, and they told stories like in the tribal days, who were storytellers for the culture, and they shared with each other the stuff that they thought was fascinating or life-giving or just appalling, and they slapped their legs a lot, and uh, and they helped each other become better and better writers by keeping the focus on the story, on getting on with it and not going on too long, and on shoving books and poetry at each other that they really felt would be a form of mentorship. So it was your dad, he was an inspiration for being a writer? He he was a model, yeah. I'm sure he was the inspiration. And I, you know, the, here's how I became a writer. I had a gift. I'm not sure if you're allowed to say that because it sounds sort of self-aggrandizing, but I was a very shy, odd girl, and I found almost religious salvation in the written word when I found chapter books. And you know, when I get in bed tonight, I'll find salvation in another chapter book. But I was an early reader, and I could write. I could. I could. Um, I would be the kid on the blacktop at elementary school that the kids would turn to to tell them the story of something we'd all experienced collectively. So that there'd be the experience: somebody had gotten into a fight, someone had stolen someone's lunch, someone had been hurt, someone's parents were getting divorced, which pretty much hardly happened in the fifties and early sixties. And they would want me to tell it because we love stories. We. Barry Lopez, the great novelist, said, sometimes we need a story more than we need food. And the kids would want to hear a story so they could make sense of what had happened that day. And I had a gift for knowing where to start, and I had a gift for bringing it to a close. And uh, and I just got better. And it was such a joy. You know what it's like to give away your artwork to people. It just makes people happy and they smite their own foreheads and they go, that's exactly right. I never saw it like that before. So I developed um, a joy in sharing these stories with people. And I had uh, learned that writing was just like playing piano or tennis, that if you did it all the time, every day you got better and better. Well, I can tell you that my experience was the exact opposite I always knew I had like an artist's heart. I always had things that wanted to be, that wanted to come out of me. I never wanted to write. I thought it was so not cool. Yeah. It wasn't until later that I really found written word just as a way that I wanted to express myself as well as other art forms. But yeah. So when you had me, it doesn't make much sense as a new mother that doesn't have a lot of money to continue to follow this crazy, silly dream of being an independent artist. There's no retirement. There's there no... isn't? No. I thought you said there was. No, I'm sorry. I misspoke. <laughs> <laughs> There's no retirement. There's no regular income. It's feast or famine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember that growing up that you'd be like, hey, right now we don't have a lot of money, but I'm going to make some. Mm-hmm. And so don't need anything right now. Mm-hmm. And we can get stuff when I get paid again. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make, I don't think it ever makes sense on paper if you do pluses and minus. Right, right, right. Of why you should follow that nudge inside of you to be an artist or why you should go get a really stable job. And I don't think there's a wrong answer, but when does it make sense to follow this calling that doesn't make sense on paper? 
Well, you know, first of all, I'm completely unemployable. By the time I had you, I was 35, and you and my fifth book came, fourth book came out about the same time, all new people, as you were an all new person. And first of all, there was no, there's no job I'm um, qualified for. I'm a dropout, and I have a, I don't have the right personality to have a job all day, and I couldn't have made enough money to get childcare for you, daycare for you. So I just saw, because growing up around writers, I just had this crazy belief that art isn't supposed to make sense. Art is, is, is about all aspects of our life, but that includes our emotional and intellectual and physical and heartful and spiritual needs and, um, and callings and, reasons that we exist is for to create. And so I just felt like my dad didn't have a lot of money. He certainly had more than I had when I had you. But I also had God in my life. And I felt that if God's brought you to something, God's going to bring you through that. And I had been brought to a place in my writing at 35, where I'd had a lot of critical success. And we, our rent was like nothing. I think it was three hundred fifty dollars. Well, it wasn't much of a place. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but <laughs> I think you might be thinking of the rat trap we moved into from the first place we lived until you were two. But I think the rent was three fifty or four hundred, and I could always make that. And um, I just figured God would provide, and this is what I do, and this is my gift and my calling, and we would just sort it out as we went along. So what I want out of this particular episode is I hear a lot of interviews with brilliant people and it's kind of from like a bird's eye view of where they are now. It's really hard for me, say, in the in the trenches of trying to become an artist, become a creative, to relate to much of what they have to offer except for their big insight points. So I just want to start from the beginning. If you've got that nudge, you've got that calling, where do you start? Well, like with everything else, you start where your butt is, and you have to learn the hard way, probably, that all freedom comes from discipline. So I, I have never once asked myself if I felt like writing that day, because I don't think I ever have once. I don't um, find it really comfortable. I feel like a sort of ADD kid. When I sit down to write, I want to get up. I want to turn on MSNBC. I want to literally do anything. I'd rather give the cat a flea dip than write. But this is what I do. I have, I do, I write by prearrangement with myself. I write. I do it as a debt of honor. I have a gift and I have a vision that my art can be helpful in some way to a world that is very cold and strung out and stressed out. So I sit down. I've always sat down at the same time. And um, I, you start where you are, and you have to. The thing I think that gives my writing students the most faith—I mean, not that I've had any for ten years, but when I did—what um, gives them the most faith is that I and every single writer they completely love writes these unbelievably awful first drafts. That, but we sit down and do it. We have the habit. We have the knowledge that the only freedom is comes through discipline. And that you, I, you know, I say to people that want to write, keep your butt in the chair, butt in chair, get that tattooed on your left arm, butt in chair. Because you know, with being a father, that if you get your kid to sit down against all odds, something magic might happen. You give them some paper 
all those years when he was typing away those short stories, you give him a typewriter and you piece of paper and you get him in the chair and you tell him he's going to be there for a while. He's going to create. And, uh, and I think I told you this, I saw it was so brilliant. This video I saw last week about a, um, a woman saying what's killing us is the cell phones because we're never bored anymore. And that in the old days, up until 10 years ago, you'd get bored, you'd sit down, you'd be bored all the time. So you'd create, you just start working on a story that you had an idea for. If you're a draw artist, you start drawing. And now we're not bored for a second. We just check our Twitter. Jonathan and I talked about that last time that the consume to create ratio is so thrown off and there's mm -hmm. a community of people creating, but when you create the natural reward, like the, the ancient reward is that you spend a bunch of time, you dedicate yourself to something, you finish it. And eventually when you stop feeling like it's total shit and it starts to feel like you've, you're something you're proud of, you get that huge reward of dopamine and mm -hmm. of self-esteem self-esteem and with the cell phones and all this you can just whether it's tv or it's something that people have spent the time to create but you're reaping the benefit mm -hmm. it's like they spent the 10 months to make the series mm -hmm. but you get to just reap it right away mm -hmm. so i i struggle with this i know you struggle with this we both love our entertainment why why bother i'll tell you you taught me something 10 years ago when you were in your late teens i think that the worst thing on earth would be to get old and, and regret how you spent how you spent this one precious life that you have. And if you have a thing inside of you, this mysterious thing that is vision and talent and this kind of urgency to create, to get something on paper, and you squandered that, you'll have the worst regret on earth. No one cares if you write. No one. I do. Mommy does. No one cares if we write. So we better. And so if that thing is inside of you, that is a kind of a tugging on your sleeve of, come on, I love that story. Tell me. Tell it. Just tell it. It's going to go badly. We'll make it better. But just get your butt in the chair and tell me the story the best you can. Same that you, same way you would talk to Jax. So that that to me, that terror of regret really keeps me going sometimes. If I don't create, even if it's something silly that I'm never going to show anybody, I start to feel sick. And it's the same if I start something and I don't finish it, yeah. even if I'm never going to show it to anybody. Yeah. If I start something and I don't finish it, it's evidence for my critic, my inner critic to use of why I should never create again. Mm -hmm. Let's go see all these projects you never finished. Why start mm -hmm. this one? Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the question of what do we do with the inner critic, right? You, know, you have to befriend the inner critic. You can't pretend that you don't have it. You can't just plug your ears like little kids do and go, la, 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 la. It's there, and you have to really invite it to the table if you're going to get anywhere. You have to welcome it, and you have to know that every single writer on earth struggles with it, and you just have to stop being a big whiny baby and um, and say, thank you for sharing. I think it's good to distract the critics sometimes with little projects in your head, but you have to be able to be in the same room with it without it having the upper hand so that what helps me is to remember that the writers I love most, Barbara Kingsolver and 
Frederick Beekner and Jack Cornfield and Janine Roth and and uh, John Updike, you it's it comes with the turf, and it's such a blessing to get to be a creative person. That the hard part of it is just something you have to accept and push on through. Also, here's the thing. People love to read about the struggle. It's kind of like a ping pong game inside of every artist is the vision on the one side of the table, the vision, the talent, the uh, willingness. I mean, just the willingness to sit there and be kind of uncomfortable for a couple hours. And maybe you have little, you know, you can picture the upper right quadrant metaphorically of the story or the the bottom middle and you just um you make a stab at that and the critic is rolling its eyes and going oh i told you so right the inner critic is always saying i told you so i told you this was doomed and that you're a person of less value than you like to think but on the other side and so that's a ping pong game is the person that there's like a child who has the ability to rein himself in and get some p words on paper and then the inner critic and it's a ping pong game so whenever the ball's on the good side of the court you write like crazy and you're going to have i can promise everyone who's listening to this you're going to have some god-awful days and your inside person is going to tell you the stuff that the world told you that was so damaging that um the jig is up and you got to find a job and, <laughs> right i feel like that all the time these right. days <laughs> when i'm on a roll I can write, I can sculpt, I can do what I want to do. I love it. And it's tempting to always want to create from that standpoint. Uh, but what you told me is that a professional sits down regardless. Yeah, right. does it re regardless. And the work might be unusable, but it's not about that. Right. Uh, with the critic, Jonathan, uh, who's on the previous podcast, that was one of the things when we worked together was such a hard thing to wrangle because I'm so critical. I'm so, I, it gets abusive. And on one side of it, Jonathan really pointed out that like the critic's not a bad guy, mm -hmm. you know, it's part of you for a reason. There's, mm -hmm. it wants what's good for you, but it's out of control. You know, mm -hmm. it, we need to figure out how to work with it a little bit better. The critic in one sense is responsible for your work being to a high degree to mm -hmm. have a critical eye. But on the other sense, uh, when it gets abusive, it says it, its voice is like, I'm responsible for your success. Mm -hmm. Without me, without this tough love, which is abuse, mm -hmm. your work would be sh total dog shit. So what's the balance? When does it cross the line? When does it get to be too much or not healthy to your life? Mm -hmm. it well, there's an exercise in Bird by Bird that I think is useful, and I've used this a million times, which is to picture a mason jar. Because the problem with the inner critic is it is just some, It's like a, a misguided helper. It's trying to keep you from being publicly ashamed or, you know, disgraced. It thinks it's helping you, but it can be drowning out the voice of creation inside of you. So uh, you imagine a mason jar without a lid on it, and, um, and you pick up each of these voices that's telling you that you're disappointing or that you're wasting your time. You've got a little kid. You better have an income. Do you have medical? Blah, blah, blah. And you pick up these voices like by the tail as if they're little mice and you drop them in the, in the mason jar. And then when there's three or four of them, they all have to do with your disappointing. This is BS. You need to go get a college degree is what you, you know, you pick up four of them by the tail. You drop them in. You put the lid on and then you picture that there's a rheostat 
and they chatter and they throw themselves at this wall of the glass of the jar from inside and you can look at them and you turn the volume way, way, way down and you get to work. You're always going to have them. It's tomorrow's Monday morning. I'm going to have them. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to silence them for a couple hours and then they're just going to, they'll get out. But you know what? It starts to feel like domestic violence, doesn't it? Like there's a really good, gentle, spiritual, creative person. And then there's this bully. I only do it because I love you. you I know. know. Yeah, I'm tr- I know. I know. Trust me. It says, right? The voice of every con artist is trust me. And um, this is for you in your best interest. And you just got to quiet it down. Try the mason jar. It actually really works. <laughs> okay, I will. Getting through it, whether it is the critic, whether it's just a slump, whether you've gotten some negative feedback on a piece that you just, when you get that feeling of, I should quit, which I get that. I get that often. Uh, I, I think a lot of people get that. How do you keep going? How do you take the next right step? When you have no motivation, what's what's left to keep you going? Well, I think that you just have to really hone in on that sense of honor and that you're doing it as a debt of honor to your creative, the truth of your spiritual identity is that you're an artist, you're a creative, and you honor that. You would in any of your friends, right? With any of your friends, if they were stuck, I know how you talk to them, and I talk to my friends this way too. And I would say, you know what? You're you're doing this amazing project. I love it. I, I for one, would be really disappointed if you stopped. And, you know, bird by bird, just take a very small piece of it. Is there a part of the story you could tell me? Because also it's like tricking your eight-year-old son. If you get him, it's like getting someone into the very cold water where you know they'd really have fun if they started splashing around, but they have, you have to get him in. And so I would say to a friend, the last piece you did was fantastic. Everyone loved it. It was funny. And you had the same horrible feeling. So why don't you sit down and um, and and just try to write that one section you already described to me, which is about you guys heading for the Grand Canyon when you're 22 and how things, let's say, got away from you. And, um, and it's very funny. It's very touching. And I think it would also be really helpful for people who are struggling with their own sobriety. Just go tell, why don't you tell me that story? Okay. And, and then the, the inner critic and the voice will say, that is so stupid. That is such a mom thing. That is, I think I've already told it and all these reasons. And then you think, all I'm going to do is tell this one story and you go and you do it. No one cares if you write. No one is going to get you to do it, so you better. You write the story. It's funny because you start out writing the story about when you and your friends headed for the Grand Canyon, but it actually has to do with the weeks or months before you got sober and how there was this sort of snowball building that you had no idea was there, that you had a life of kind of debauchery and uh, world travel and whatever being, you know, whatever bizarre anti-mommy dream you had and instead this thing was happening inside of you that was going to lead to a brand new life and in fact in that brand new life you were going to discover your voice as a writer 
So it all kind of comes full circle, but you can't know that till you sit down. And then probably the line I'm most famous for is that you write an incredibly shitty first draft. And in fact, I just want to say for your listeners that I think that is when you began taking me seriously was when you went to high school and the teachers were teaching bird by bird and you heard the phrase shitty first draft and the teachers up and the kids all really liked you for even knowing somebody that came up with that line. That was so cool to have a mom who said shit in a classroom. I know, right? So before we get to process, I want to talk about fear, failure, rejection, and before we get into the the public world of being an artist, which means putting your work in front of people you don't know, because if friends and family alone could pay your bills, that'd be great. But generally, it means having to, to win other people over, whether it's press or an audience. But right now, what's really relevant to me in terms of fear, failure, and rejection is your friends don't always like your work. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who do like my work, but often I can I can post a photo of, say, the dog. And 80 people will like the photo. And then Mm -hmm. I can post a piece of my my artwork and only 10 people Mm -hmm. will like it. And so it's tough. So about friends and your artwork and how has it played a role in your life in in terms of getting negative feedback from friends or your friends not just being elated that you're doing this or even the friends that you've had who did support you? What do you make of all of it? Oh, it's just a nightmare. I mean, it is... The most devastating thing I know as an artist is criticism and rejection, getting turned down, having certain places that are, say, the most esteeming places for an artist have no interest in you. I have to cough for a second, (coughs) but it's like the Vonnegut title, Welcome to the Monkey House. And if you're going to be a writing monkey, you're going to get rejected. You're going to get horrible letters that say things like, I honestly don't know what you're trying for here. Or I've had I've had a lot of friends that are have zero interest in spirituality or stuff about the process of awakening or authenticity in one's life. They're just not like that. You know some of them. And they're just funny and they love to talk politics and books and sports and and they don't want to talk about this thing I'm most interested in. And they haven't even read some of my books. And they've let me know. They'll say, I don't like that sort of thing. And it's good friends, close friends. And it's devastating. And it gets me every time. I'm 63 now. I'll be 64 when the next book comes out. And two friends that you've grown up around are going to not read my book. Because they don't have an interest in that. And it's gonna. it gets me every time. But you know what? That's not them. That's me. That's my own um, side of the street, and I get to do the work on why what somebody else thinks about my work would cause me to stop in my tracks and give up the most fantastic quality um, I have, which is the willingness to write badly, and then to rewrite, and then to rewrite, and then to rewrite. I hand stuff to Neil, my partner, or to Doug, my best friend, or Janine, my best friend, and and I um, ask them to give me feedback before I send it to an agent, my agent or a publisher. And, you know, Doug will, I'll get an email back and it'll say, I'm going to love this. But I don't yet because I don't think you know what you're up to. 
And I got really interested in the middle of page three. The first two pages were just like clearing your throat for me. And I think you had to get them out of the way to get to what this piece I think is really about. And then I, you know, I'm just like you. I'm just, we're just so sensitive. And I feel like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Um, We're not friends anymore. Fuck you. Fuck you. You're an asshole. And, um, and and don't call me again. And I do that every time. And like Neil comes into the bedroom after he's read something, and I'll be waiting like a little dog, you know, for feedback. And he'll say something like, I love a lot of it. And then I feel like, well, I think I'll just kill myself, you know, or I think um, I could have done better than him. You know, he's a loser. And now I hate him. And um, but it just comes with the turf and you listen. And I'll tell you, the criticism and rejection I have got made me into the artist I am today. It's like Nautilus for the writer's soul to get rejected. It's heavy lifting, and it develops the muscle to find out what you love and find out what you want to do. And um, and the other thing is, you know, I've always spoken a lot about the gift of failure and mess, and and um, and that if you're going to be an artist, I want my dream is for you to make more of them. Um, when I was a kid, and I don't think I did this to you so much, but it was like, don't waste time, don't waste paper, don't waste, well, I always gave, I just bought reams of paper for you, waste it, waste it, waste it. I always told my writing students, waste paper and send money to the Audubon Society, you know, or Sierra Club, print out, print out terrible drafts so you can have it on paper, print it out, print it out, and then you print it out, then you're desperate because you have terrible self-esteem to get some feedback from somebody as if that'll be a magic wand that'll make you feel validated, and then they say, I'm going to love it, or there are a lot of things I love in this, I don't think you know what you're doing yet. And it's, there's no shortcut and there's no way around it. You just have to do the Nautilus. You have to, and what I started to say was, it'll save you because it means you don't put unfinished work out there, work that is not at its highest level, you know, that you kind of maybe burnish the surface of it to get it to be charming or, um, you know, dizzy, dazzling. And what you really needed to do was a deeper dive into the material and into the truth, into the humanity of it. And somebody says, now you're talking. When you start creating, you get so much feedback. You get unsolicited feedback. Everybody thinks they know how to solve what's wrong with your work. If you were to just write a sentence or two down to remember, how do you tell whose feedback is valuable and helpful and well-intended between the people who kind of want you to fail secretly? Well, lots of people want you to fail because they feel like failures. And it's very, very shaming for everyone to have those feelings about friends or other writers or other sculptors or whatever. But I know exactly who can help. And I there's some perverse thing in me. It's like the way that the inner critic thinks is just a misguided helper. There's something inside of me that kind of wants somebody to tell me it isn't very good or it should be better or I should, should or should or should. Well, shoulds are shit, you know. And if somebody doesn't respond to my work, um, I have to have the little talk. Probably I could have it with you. I could have it with Doug or Janine or Neil where um, they remind me that that's not what I'm in it for. I'm not in it for to win people over who just think this human stuff is 
just not as fun or kicky or too threatening. Probably they don't enjoy it because it's really scary for people sometimes to read my stuff, which is really a lot about our shadow and our self-loathing and making friends with that, inviting all those pieces of our being up to the table for soup, you know, not rejecting them. But if somebody doesn't get it, doesn't get my work at all, and they express that and say, I just don't really like this kind of, I don't love the topic. It's not really my thing. Um, that's the last time I'm going to give it to them. There's going to be a perverse thing inside of me that wants to win them over because of my bad self-esteem. And I have to realize I'm just hurting myself because it's kind of so familiar to me. We all want to be loved and adored by everybody. I want every single piece of mine to just be universally loved. Mm-hmm. And it gets in the way when I'm creating mm-hmm. to try and think about how people are going to respond to this. Mm-hmm. What tools have you used to stay true to your voice or to make sure that fear of not being received well doesn't tarnish what's really trying to come out of you? I notice a lot of times I'm weird and kind of gross and I always feel like, oh, I have to polish that. I have mm-hmm. to polish that out. It's gross. You know, mm-hmm. it's or not like perverted, but just like foul. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a foul mouth. Mm-hmm. And ha- But honey, you- the thing is that everybody's weird and everybody's gross and and everybody secretly thinks they're a piece of shit or a fraud and that if you get to know them too deeply you're going to discover that it's all like a you know store for a false front in a movie in north korea right in north korea and that you're actually really shallow and you're just out for yourself and blah blah everyone's just out for themselves everyone the reason i write with such honesty sometimes is that the universal it's universal Everybody, if I say, oh, all, really all I think about, I'm not thinking about saving Africa right now. I'm thinking about my cellulite and do I have time before next summer to do, you know, I'm thinking about meaningless Kardashian obsessive stupidity. And if you told me that you were thinking that sort of stuff, you know, you know what I would say, I'd say, oh, me too. Now you're talking, let's go. And then we would compare notes and we'd start jamming and it would be funny then it would be our favorite stuff and it would change how we both felt. We'd feel a lot more welcoming to ourselves to know that somebody we loved and respected also was that way. Everybody's that way. So for me, harsh words don't tarnish the material so much, but they make me feel like it's very, very small and scared like a child. And so it's again that dichotomy. There's a child that is Jack's at the typewriter writing these amazing stories. And there's a scared child who's growing up around the domestic violence that is actually taking place inside of us. So, you know, me, I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm a grandma. We've got how many kids out there in the other room right now? I know how to help kids feel safe. And I need to be the person that helps the kid of me feel safe by saying, This is a win-win situation. You cannot screw this up. Just tell me that one story. Tell me about the day that you went and discovered Gizmo and how crazy it was for you at that point in your life to get a 10-pound dog who had lived on the streets for two years, you know, and just tell me that story. What was it in the soul of that being that you, your soul recognized? Just tell me that one story. And so the fearfulness, again, it comes with the ter- with the territory. And um, I have these habits. I just do it. 
I always apologize to students or people at lectures for sounding like a Nike. But I say, you just do it. You do it bird by bird. You do a small piece of it at a time. It's going to go badly. Everything you've ever loved or been changed by began as an incredibly shitty first draft. So just do it. No one cares if you do it. Do you? Yeah. Well, get your butt in the chair then and give me, how much time can you give me right now? Well, I want to go to the gym. I know you want to go to the gym. I want to, I was going to do that. I go, I know that. I know that. I do too. Can't, will you give me an hour and a half? If you can give me an hour and a half, we can help elicit this story and even get it to a second draft. But you got to meet me halfway. When you want to take something ser- when you want to take it seriously, your craft, you want to go for it, you have this insane idea that maybe somebody might pay you for what really wants to come out of you. Right now I'm working for myself, hardly. It's not a sure thing. And there's this tremendous amount of pressure. I think it's society that says like there's always more to do. There's always more to do. I could fill my entire day trying to do it and I can go to bed feeling like I haven't done enough. But we had a very full life together when I was growing up. You were very busy and I came. I grew up on the floors of bookstores so you could teach writing classes or so you could talk, but somehow you did manage to make time, Annie and Sam time. And especially as I work for myself, I always feel like I could be doing more work-life balance, especially in the beginning. How do you balance it out? How do you have a great work ethic and really do your best and still have time for what keeps you human, your, your relationships, your friends, your children, your loved ones. You, um, you know, in recovery, we always hear that the willingness comes from the pain, the willingness to change and to make huge changes in your life. It doesn't come from some inspiration, which I actually don't really believe in inspiration. It comes from the pain of, of feeling that you're not being true to yourself or that you're dropping stitches, that you're not getting any exercise and you're not spending enough time on the floor with your kid. And that pain says, this is, this has got to stop. You know, step zero is this shit has got to stop. The shame of it or the look on your loved one's face or the interior look on your own face when you think, it makes me so, well, I'll say it makes me so incredibly happy to spend time with my mother. Why don't I make more time? Why don't I, why don't we have a lunch date once a week? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And, and what I knew somehow, I just think God taught me this. I'd been sober three years when I had you and I knew what was going to really deliver. I knew that the now was where all the rewards and all of truth, all of re- real life were, and that the things that would help me settle into the now here and there, like being on, like I spent a lot of time on the floor with Legos, doing Legos with you, and um, because I knew that it would draw me into the now, and I always, because we never had any money, I'd always be like, God, I should get that book review written, oh my God, I have to get to this, I have to do it, and I would just be, you know, really pressure myself to do it. And then that thing inside of me, that voice would kind of quiet that rattled child who has bad self-esteem and say, there's time, there's time. Let's play on the floor with Sam for another half hour and then we'll set him up with his markers and, and a sketchbook. And then we will basically be doing the same, but I'll be doing it at the computer with my markers, my uh, t- telecommunication markers. And um, 
So I would say, listen to your body, listen to the pain that you're causing by not doing the things you love most. You love to hike. If you don't get outside, if I don't get outside, it makes me mentally ill. And so, and it's very easy for me not to, because I'm trying to keep this house together. I'm in a relationship. I have you and Jax, I have our dogs, and, and I need to hike. And it's just like, you know, like Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh had that pop gun, you know, and was very fierce with it. And I kind of imagine having a pop gun and saying, you have to walk, you have to walk, or you wreck everyone's life, you know? And if you go outside for 45 minutes, then your whole day will be different and everybody's life in the house will be different. Now you've got, like this morning, everybody needed me. And, um, and I just said, I have to write. I, or when I came home from church, there were all you guys and all three kids and Neil and everybody would have loved for me to put that aside. And I had to write. It was bird by bird. I had one hour long bird that I felt because I'd been for a hike this morning and I'd been to church. I felt that I could nail and I wasn't going to let any of you steal that from me. And so it was like boundaries and the Christopher Robin pop gun. And I went, I closed the door and I announced I wasn't going to be that nice or available. Well, it lets you know, though, that you've done what you needed to do today in terms of work when you've done enough. And then you can go back and, and treat yourself, be kind to yourself and do stuff that you love. If you did the best you can, if you did life on life's terms and you had an uh, I had an hour and 15 minutes this morning. When I woke up and I wrote and I didn't put on the Sunday morning political talk shows, which I love because I made my work a priority. I'm also on a deadline. I always had my students have benevolent deadlines. I call benevolent pressure. And I would say, like, if you have to get this um, conversation into shape to run as a podcast, then I would say pressure yourself. Get it done. That's not the critic. That's the per. That's like the person who is um, steady and stable and saying, I want you to be the best you can. And you'd owe me, you owe me an hour and 15 minutes. Can you do it when you wake up? Can you get up early? I got up early. I did it. I felt fantastic. I went for only a 45 minute hike. I went to church for an hour and a half. I came back and that same voice. That's why you invite all the people inside you to the table. The person who can't sit still, the person who thinks that you're, you really ought to be applying for jobs at Autodesk or, you know, or wherever. You invite them all to the table and there's that one person who's like a grown up that says, when can I expect this finished podcast? And you would say, well, I, you know, we've got the kids, right? I'd say, I understand that. I'm asking you, I'm not hassling you. When can you be done? You'd say, well, I think I could be finished by tomorrow night, probably right after dinner. I'd say, great, deal. Can you? And then if you tried your best to get that done, it either does or doesn't happen. But if you tried to get it done, you get a full credit. You get the gold foil star. And then we learn to deal with the voice that, that since we were here as earthlings, has said it's not enough. We're not enough. There's something we can add. To make us enough, there's something we can subtract that would make us more fabulous, of more value. And your value, you know, we're pre-approved. We are pre-approved. And so ever, however we're working and being in our relationships, in our parenting, in our, um, in our everything, it is enough. 
And if it's not, you know that pain of feeling like, oh, I'm letting myself down. And it's like when you gave me that pep talk 10 years ago about the worst thing would be the regret that you didn't get your creation done. You didn't get your writing done. You'd let it go. Now you're 75 and you have cataracts and your feet hurt and you really feel a lot less like writing than you did at 40. So yeah, you listen to your body, you listen to your heart and you, you know it's true. You know what works for you. If you don't work, uh, it hurts your heart. If you don't get outside, it hurts your your brain. So you just do it like the Nike act. I wanted to talk about the Lamont tribe, the community that we had, people to help you raise me. Mm -hmm. You had great mentorship and friends who were writing and creating and had created and could kind of tell you what was lying ahead. You had somebody anonymously donate your first computer, right? Because mm -hmm. they wanted you to write. Mm -hmm. What's the importance of building that community as an artist? I think it's everything. I, um, you know, all those years that you were on the floor of Book Passage when I was teaching those, teaching those big writing workshops, everybody there doesn't didn't really want to write, but they wanted to be writers and they wanted to be published. And so the people that were living to get their piece workshopped during those 10 weeks would end up disappointed. And then there'd be this kind of motley crew of people that would bond together. And there might be four of them and five, and they would form writing workshops. They would form writing groups. And they would say, every second Thursday, we're going to meet here right after dinner at 7 o'clock, 7 to 9, we're going to be a writing group. And we're going to give each other copies of each of our work and we're going to have to have five pages that's what i mean by benevolent pressure don't show up if you don't well if you show up with three you get a break and you know life happens and it's not very life is not very convenient very often and that was so touching to me and some of them are still going you know and it's sometimes 20 years later and you know terry tate's gotten published and it all came from having a writing group that held her accountable that said show me the money, show me the work. And then they would say, this doesn't work. The first page is great. I love it. And then you started getting into this sort of weird show-offy thing where you were getting kind of pyrotechnic and trying to get me to think you're smarter than I already do, which in your case, I think you're really smart in Terry Tate's case. And um, But the second, second and third page are just kind of show-offy. They're not true and they're not actually that entertaining because I feel like you're trying too hard. That might be the kind of criticism that you get in a writing group. You can settle down, you can breathe, and you can just tell me the story in your own voice. You don't need to sound like Isabella Allende. You don't need to sound like E.E. E. Cummings, you know. The great French Jesuit Henry Nouwen wrote a lot about the precious community as a, he wrote a lot of books. But he wrote about it as really the reason we're even here. And I pretty much agree, is that um, the community that is that will be here for Thanksgiving, it's the same people been here really forever. The people that helped me get sober and stay sober, the people that then I helped who brought, got brought in, you know, kind of marbled into this big cake batter of people helping one another. My church, you know, they 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 filled our refrigerator on casser with casseroles when you were born. They filled our house with clothes. They filled our house with themselves. They came, Gordon Schaefer from St. Andrew, came and cleaned my toilet and my sink. That is the precious community. He didn't come over with groceries. I had groceries. He came over and said, 
And I quote, if you could ask one person to do one thing for you that you feel mortified to be need help with, what would that be? I said, I need my bathtub, my toilet, my sink cleaned. And he did it, right? So I would say that finding a group, and then you write alone. So it's not like you're trying to get out of the solitude. You're going to be putting in time mostly by yourself, and you're going to be getting that what are those machine, pinball machine of thoughts that are ricocheting around, you know, under the coconut shell of you should be getting to work, you should be playing with jacks, you should, you should be giving your dog, uh, you know, should be brushing her hair, you should this, you should, you should, you should, you should. And you're going to spend the time in solitude and then you're going to come out and we're going to welcome you. We're going to go, we're going to be excited to know that you put in the time that was not very comfortable to realize your dream. One of the most useful lines you gave me, which I just wanted to record here, was if it makes you sound witty or look cute or be cool, it probably isn't useful to the art. It's probably not needed. Take it out. And then of all time favorite quotes I loved because you told me this when I was younger, maybe early teens, as you said, son or Sam, we are on a shit free diet. We don't eat anyone's shit here. Mm -hmm. And I love that, especially for sticking up for myself. Yeah. To end this, to wrap it all up, I thought it would be nice to record a message of what you would tell the younger artist, Annie, in terms of everything she needs to know in a very brief statement. Or if Jax is an adult and he's lost and he stumbles upon this, what is the what do you want him to know to just keep going through life? You are pre-approved. You are alone on your hero's journey. But there are people all around you that will never let you fail. You know what fills your heart with gladness and a feeling of accomplishment. Don't let anyone take that away from you by saying you need an agent or have you been published or anything. Just do it. Do it bird by bird. It's going to make more messes, more failures. Samuel Beckett said, try, ever try, ever fail, fail, try again, fail again, try again, fail, fail better. Don't, I would say what's on the, your left arm, which says we never give up. Thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Look at that. Episode two is in the books and we kept it in an hour. Woo. Go us. How to Human is a production of HelloHumans.co. Go to the website, check out some of the articles. Again, thank you to all our patrons. You guys rock. We are getting close-ish to being fully supported by our audience. And by fully supported, I mean paying the production costs, not paying my bills. But, you know, one thing at a time. To become a patron, go to www.patreon.com slash HelloHuman. But if you can't do that, don't worry. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a written review. I heard it helps. I have this crazy dream of being on the new and noteworthy section of iTunes. But we'll see. Like us on Facebook. Like us on Twitter. I think these tools are going to be useful for reaching out to potential future guests. Anyway, until next time, have a great day.